Judges chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. Uh, if you guys are new with us, uh, my name is Kenson Lamb. I have the honor of being a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. So always glad to join you guys and to be with you all on Sunday morning. Now as you guys are turning to Judges 11 here, just to remind you guys that the story of Judges, um, if it could have a movie rating, uh, it will most likely be rated R, okay? Um, it's been pretty tragic and it's been pretty vicious as we've read from the first judge to where we're at today. Um, and the judge that we'll be reading today, Jephthah, um, continues to spiral out of control uh, with their sin and unbelief. So uh, here we go. So let's go ahead and read this, Judges chapter 11. Uh, I'll be reading from verses 29 to 40, so quite a bit of verses. Then we'll pray and jump in, okay? So Judges 11, starting at verse 29. Once again, page 212 in the church Bibles. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead, and from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Arar to the neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities, and as far as from abel Karamin with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Anamites. So she said to, him, said to her father, let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down to the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we believe that all the counsel of your word is good for all of us because it all points to Christ. And Father God, as we have a chance to work through this story, a very tragic and very sad story, that God, again, that you would help us to see Christ, that he would be the one exalted. Father, again, help our hearts to be uh, of anticipation, to receive this with great expectation because, God, we hear from you. And friends, before I close this in prayer, would you say this to God? God, help me to have a pure faith. Would you say that to him? God, help me to have a pure faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
You know, for many of us, one of the favorite things we like to eat during the summer is the classic hot dog. Okay, let me just show you a picture of this hot dog here, okay? Now, it is estimated in this year alone, Americans will eat about 20 billion hot dogs, okay? That's about 20 hot dogs per person in America. We eat hot dogs at barbecues, picnics, holidays, baseball games, tailgating parties. On July 4th alone, Americans ate 150 million hot dogs, okay? We love our hot dogs. But have you ever asked yourself, what is a hot dog? What is in it? I got some bad news for you, all right? So let me show you what it says on the side of an Oscar Mayer wiener package here. Let me, let, me, let me just show you what it says on the side of these, you know, packaged hot dogs. It says this, mechanically separated turkey, mechanically separated chicken, pork, water, salt, ground mustard seed, sodium lactase, corn syrup, sodium phosphate, sodium diacetate, sodium ascorbate, sodium nitrate for meat color and flavor. Okay, this sounds disturbing. But if you really get into this, it gets even worse, okay? For example, mechanically separated turkey means, per the USDA, this is how they would describe it, a paste-like and batter-like poultry product that is produced by forcing bones with attached edible tissue through a high-pressured strainer. This process is called advanced meat recovery. And let me just show you a picture of what gets pumped out here, all right? Mmm, delicious, right? Delicious. Okay, let, let's, let's, let's change the slide. Let's change the slider, okay? All right, you guys are going to get all distracted now, all right? Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because many of us, many of us in America, many of us here in the South Loop area, we have a faith just like a cheap hot dog. You know, what I mean by that is just like how a hot dog has so much mixed to, into it. All these different additives, all these different chemicals, all these different animals that now you can barely call this hot dog a meat. You know, in the same way as Christians, we can take our faith, add a little bit here, mix it with a little bit of this opinion over here, mix it up and stir it with this worldly value. And the end result is something that we can barely call a Christian faith. You know, today we're going to be looking at the story of Jephthah. And this was a man that I truly believe had faith in God. But what happened is that he allowed himself to be so corrupted and polluted by all the false religions around him, by all the worldly values around him, that what he believed in barely resembled anything of what true faith in God would look like. So as we get started this morning, let me just ask you, do you have a pure faith in God? Or has your faith become more like a hot dog. You know, so with that, let's go ahead and jump into our story here, okay? Let's jump into our story. And we didn't read these verses, but in Judges chapter 10, we see again that Israel again falls back into sin, okay? Judges 10, verses 6 and 7. Let me read it to you here. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsake the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, okay? So we see here again the cycle of the judges begin again. And let me just show you again what this cycle looks like here. They sin, and God and his righteous anger removes his hand of protection, and the Israelites get crushed. Now, something I want to point out to you here is that in this situation here, 
the evil in Israel's heart is worse than it's ever been before. Because if you notice in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, Israel doesn't just worship one false god now, but the author says that they worship seven false gods. And let me show you the list here. Baals, the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the god of the Philistines. Seven other gods they are now worshiping, other false gods. And this number seven is not insignificant because in scripture this often highlights this idea of completeness. And I believe what is happening here is that when you see these seven gods, it represents in many ways the peak of their spiritual adultery. And the second thing I want to point out is all these different gods were gods of the surrounding nations around them, north, east, west, south. So instead of Israel being a nation wholly loyal to God and being distinctly different people, they mixed their faith with everyone else's. And this led to enslavement. So the people of Israel again, they're enslaved, they're crushed, and they learned their lesson. They cry out to God. They repent to God for help. And it's in this moment, it sets the scene to raise up a deliverer to free them from the Ammonites. And it's in chapter 11, Jephthah is introduced to us. Now, we learn a few things about Jephthah in chapter 11. In verse 1, we learn this about him. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Now, Jephthah was what we would say a person with an unsavory past, not a person of noble birth. And we also see here that God, again, uses people, unlikely people, to be his people to deliver others. We also read here that he gets rejected by his family in verse 2. Verse two. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. So Jephthah was rejected because he wasn't seen as a true son. He was a son of a prostitute. And it was also very convenient because one less person in the family is one less person to divide up the inheritance. And finally, Jephthah becomes a leader of a gang. Verse 3 here, it says this, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Okay, Now, this phrase, worthless fellows, means that these were outlaws and criminals. And when it says that they went out with him, it meant that they went out on raids to rob and steal from others. So we have Jephthah, a son of a prostitute, rejected by his family, a mob boss here. And we read in verse 29 that he becomes the leader of Israel. How does that happen. How does that happen? This happens because in verse 4, the Ammonites declare war on Israel and they go to Jephthah for help. Because in verse 1, he is known as a mighty warrior. Now let me just say this. Even though Jephthah might not be a guy that you bring over to your house for dinner, if you've got to throw down in a parking lot, this is the guy you want next to you. So the leaders of Gilead recognize this. They go to Jephthah and say, you lead us, we will make you the commander of our armies. Now Jephthah first tries to negotiate peace with the Ammonites in verses 10 to 28. But the Ammonites reject it. The weapons are drawn. And war is upon Israel. And this takes us to the verses that we started reading. In verse 29, it starts by saying that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Let me just say that there are no better words to be said if you're going into a fight. Because every time you see those words come upon anyone in Scripture, there is no losing. You never read in Scripture that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon this person and they get smoked. You never hear that. 
The Spirit of the Lord comes upon a person and they just dominate. It's at this point in verse 29, we know exactly how this war is going to play out. Jephthah is going to win because God's going to win the war for him. And this should have been the end of the story. But it's in this moment, things take a very dark turn. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then, right, if then, you see that, if then, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah makes his vow, he goes to war, and in verses 32 and 33, God gives him total victory and there is celebration all across Israel. But then this happens. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourine and with dances. She was his only child because he had neither son nor daughter. Jephthah cries out in anguish. He cannot believe that this has happened. It almost comes to a point of such unbelief that he kind of blames his daughter for this. He says, alas, look how low you have made me. He just can't wrap his head around this. And when his daughter recognizes that he has made a vow to God, she tells her dad, follow through with it. Just let me mourn my virginity. And what that all means here is that she just wants to mourn the fact that she'll never be a wife, she'll never be a mother, that the future that she was hoping for will never come to pass. So for two months, she weeps. And can I just say that when you're reading these verses and you get to that point where she's weeping for two months, doesn't our hearts get just a little bit hopeful? That in these two months, you know what? God's going to save the day. She's going to come back home and Jephthah's going to come to his senses and say to his daughter, whoops, my, my bad, my bad. It was all a misunderstanding. And she lives. Sadly, that is not what happens. Verse 39. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. This is the tragic story of Jephthah. Now, before we go into like the so what, what's the point of this story for our lives, we first need to answer this question. Why would Jephthah ever make a vow like this? Now, it's easy to think here that, well, you know what, the reason it happened is that it was made in haste. War was coming upon him. He got stressed out. He made it out of foolishness. It was a rash comment or, or simply stated, Jephthah was just being stupid in the moment. He never really meant a human sacrifice. At the very most, he, he was just thinking about an animal sacrifice. Now, many people like to see it this way because there's an emotional appeal to this, right? It, it makes it feel like this was never supposed to happen. This was all just a big accident. I don't think we can say that. Here are a couple of reasons why. First, if you look at the vow itself, verse 31. Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return. This verse here describes an intentional, purposeful act. And anytime in the Bible when you see these combination of words in the Hebrew, it always describes human activity. Humans coming back and forth and not animal activity. Also, if Jephthah had in mind an animal sacrifice the whole entire time, when his daughter walked through his doors, he would have just disregarded it. Like, you know what? No, it's a, it doesn't apply to her because I was thinking of an animal. But that's not the case. 
Also, Jephthah knew full well what the tradition of Israel was. It was tradition for the women of the city to come out and to welcome the victorious army as they returned. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, when David returns from defeating Goliath, the women come out singing and dancing. And when you look at verse 34, what happens? His daughter comes out singing and dancing and playing the tambourine. Jephthah knew what was going to happen if victory happened. Friends, we are left to conclude here that what happened was not something stupid. It was something sinister. Jephthah's vow was not something made in rash or it wasn't hasty. It was a careful promise to offer human sacrifice. Now, why would he do this? You know, let me remind you again of where he is geographically and the nations surrounding him. Let me show you that list of seven again. You see all the different gods here, Canaan, Canaan, northwest, northeast, east, south. You see all these different gods here. When you look at all these nations, do you know what was a common practice in their pagan traditions? It was human sacrifice, specifically child sacrifice. For these pagan nations, human sacrifice was an intentional act of devotion to their gods. Are you guys starting to see this? The reason Jephthah made the sinister vow was because his faith was so mixed up with the pagan faiths around him that he didn't know who his God was. Because if he just opened up the word of God, he would have known that a human sacrifice is repulsive to our God. Let me just show you two verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 12 here. 31 says this, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done to their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Leviticus chapter 20 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, a foreign god, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane, profane my holy name. Notice here, if any Israelite or anyone just coming through Israel, if they dared offer a human sacrifice, God says, I take that so seriously, is that I will take their life. I will set my face against them. That you read these verses in Leviticus, and it almost sounds like God is just agitated about this. God hates this. Again, if Jephthah just knew who he, his God was, he would have known that this was a sin. He would have known to break the vow because to keep a promise to commit sin, you never do that. Instead, you repent and confess of that. If Jephthah knew who his God was, he would have known that his God was a God who delights in saving his children. That this is a God who values life because he's the giver of life. That God cannot be bargained or bribed if he only knew his God. And while we're on this point, can I just give you one quick application? Be people of the word. Jephthah didn't know the word and it was costly. Church, if you want to have a pure faith, you must be in the pure word of God. 
You have to read it, study it, meditate on it, wrestle with it. And if I can just caution you here, if all you're getting from the word is just here on Sundays, it will not be enough. First, you will starve from spiritual nourishment. Just imagine eating one meal a day on a Sunday morning for the entire week. You'll die no matter how big that meal is. And secondly, you need to be in the Word every day because you're being bombarded every single day with lies and temptation. And can I just also say this? You also need to be part of a small group. Even if Jephthah didn't know the word really well, if he just surrounded himself with godly people who loved God and obeyed his word, it would have saved him a lot of pain and heartache. It would have saved his daughter's life. In the same way, being in biblical community is critical to your spiritual growth because it's in community your blind spots are called out. It's in community you're being rooted in the word. Be people of the word. Jephthah's faith was so polluted, so corrupted, so mixed up, check this out, that even though he was so sincere about his faith in God, because he didn't know the word, he was sincerely wrong. And his daughter paid the price for that. Now let me ask you this. Now let's ask this. What does this story mean for us? What does it mean for us here? You know, one of, this way, one of the ways that this story is helpful for us is that it makes us consider how much of our faith has been absorbed by the culture and mindset around us. That just like Jephthah, you know, what have we been desensitized to? You know, what are our blind spots? You know, what sins have we allowed ourselves to tolerate? You know, let me just give you three examples of some things that I think that we have allowed to come and to live alongside our faith in God. You know, first is this. We are a culture that idolizes our feelings. We are a culture that idolizes our feelings. You know, recently I was having a conversation with someone about heaven and hell, and I asked if they believed in it. And this person who goes to church faithfully responded by saying, yes, I absolutely believe in heaven. That is where I'm going. But with hell, you know, I'm just not feeling it. I was like, okay, what do you mean by that? Can you explain more? You know, do you believe the Bible teaches on hell? Yeah, I think it does. But I just don't feel like it's that important. You know, in that conversation, I was stunned at just how easy it was to accept and reject clear teachings from the Bible simply based on what they felt. As a culture and as a church, we have put our feelings before the truth. For example... This is why divorce rates or living and sleeping together before marriage or viewing pornography between Christians and non-Christians are basically the same. This is why we won't share our faith with others because I don't like feeling uncomfortable. This is why we don't consistently pray, read the word, go to church, go to small group because whether we go or not is not, is, is not so much out of obedience but whether or not if I'm feeling it in the morning and this is why some people will walk out of the doors of a faithful gospel preaching church because the church doesn't make them feel good. 
We have put feelings before the clear word of God, and it has made a mess of our lives and of our churches. Now, let me just be clear here. I am not saying that feelings are not important. They are very important. God has made us into emotional creatures. But in Scripture, we are never told to follow our feelings. We are told to follow the word. And it's when we follow the word, our feelings will come with it. And that's when our feelings will experience the greatest joy and delight. Because it's under God's sovereign rule. You know, another example of where we have mixed our faith is that we have idolized prosperity. We have idolized prosperity. We live in a culture that worships money and abundance. Now, in this story here, in this passage, we, right, sitting here, we are stunned with the violence that Jephthah was willing to tolerate. We're like, Jephthah, how could you do this? How could you be so silly? How could you be so stupid? But can I just say, if Jephthah was to look into our culture, he will look at us and be stunned by our materialism and greed. His jaw would drop and he would say like, whoa, whoa, this is messed up. When he looks at how much we're willing to spend on ourselves and how little we're willing to care for the poor, the orphan, the neglected, the refugee, the widows, Jephthah would say to us, have you read the word of God? Do you not know the word of God? calls us to care for the poor and the weak and the outcast? Do you not know that God has blessed us to be a blessing to others? Church, we have allowed sin and greed to corrupt our faith. Every survey across all churches, across all denominations, across America say the exact same thing. The giving habits of believers are no different than unbelievers. Did you know that right now Christians are giving less percentage-wise than they did during the Great Depression. We have allowed greed to live alongside our faith. This is also why, you know, churches that preach the prosperity gospel, they are packed to the rafters. That this is a message that is preached of how God's will for our lives is health, wealth, and prosperity. And not about how God's will is self-denial and carrying the cross. Not about how the last shall be first. Not that, that we should be servants to all. Not about your kingdom come, your will be done. No, it's about bless me, fill my pockets, build my kingdom. We have let our greed poison our faith and our witness. That as believers, we claim to have genuine faith in Christ, yet we live no differently than the rest of the world. We desire no differently than the rest of the world. And here's one final example of how we have mixed our faith. We have idolized our works. And this is the root issue for Jephthah. Because for Jephthah, God was not someone to trust or worship, but someone to buy off. Someone to control with a lavish gift that by, give, that by giving this costly sacrifice, it would win God over. Jephthah here struggled to believe in God's grace. He struggled to believe that God would be good and loving to him. So he had to trust in his works to make himself worthy of God's goodness and love. Jephthah was treating God like all of these other pagan religions and how they treated their God. It was conditional. It was based on fear. It was merit-based. For many of us here, we approach God in the same way. We don't come to him in full trust. We don't really believe that he has our best interests in mind. So like Jephthah, we try to control God through our works. You know, how many of us have ever said this to God? If God, you do this, then 
I'll do that. If, God, you let me pass this exam, then I promise to study harder next time. God, if you get me in this job or interview, then I promise that I'll start being generous. God, if you get me out of this jam, then I'll start taking you more seriously. God, if you let the Cubs win, then I'll start going to church more faithfully. Anytime we make conditions with God, we are just trying to control and manipulate him. We are showing that we don't truly trust him, nor do we really know him. Mixing the belief that my works earn me something from God, it will never lead us to worship God, but to use him. And this is the tragedy of a works-based faith. Our works make us believe that God desperately needs something from us. When in reality, the gospel tells us that we need God. He doesn't need us. We need him. What Jephthah needed to do was not sacrifice his daughter. What he needed to do was surrender his heart to God. Church, let me ask you again. Do you have a pure faith in God? Or has your faith become polluted and corrupted? So what's the good news here? Is there any hope in the story of Jephthah? There is. Jephthah's story is a story of God's ridiculous grace. Because isn't it great that God still gave victory, even in Jephthah's wickedness? Jephthah here obviously is not the hero in this story. He's the lowest of the lows. He killed his own daughter, yet he still has the victory. Why? It's because God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And this is such good news for us because every day we are unfaithful to him. And yet he still pours his grace into our lives. If God is faithful to Jephthah, friends, he will be faithful to us. Titus 3.5 says this. Let me show it to you. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God is a merciful God. He knows that we don't have what it takes to live flawless lives. And that is why he sends Jesus to be perfectly faithful on our behalf. That Jesus is the one who rises up as our unlikely deliverer. That just like Jephthah, he has a sketchy past, being born of a virgin mother. He's rejected by his family. He makes friends with sinners. He goes to war on our behalf. He fights sin and death on the cross. And when it came time to die, he did not offer up our lives. He offered up his own life for us. Christ puts himself on that altar of sacrifice. Do you guys see? Jephthah was a savior of Israel, but he was a broken and flawed savior. And just like all the judges that we've been reading, they all point to the true and perfect savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jephthah is a story that gives us great hope because even in our ignorance and disobedience and poor motives, as great as our sin is, God still gives hope grace. Jesus is still a greater Savior. Amen? Amen. You know, let me just end with this. You know, in Hebrews 11, you know, we have this incredible chapter called the Hall of Faith, that these are the list of people throughout the Bible who did astounding things for God. 
Now, the sheer fact that I'm talking about Hebrews 11 in a sermon about a guy who made a child sacrifice should make us all really nervous right now. Like, Kenson, what are you doing right now? Why are you bringing up Hebrews 11 in a, in a sermon about Jephthah? Well, let me show you Hebrews 11:32 here. It says this. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. What? How did he get in there? What is going on? Did he do something awesome in Judges 12? No, he didn't. He slaughtered 42,000 people. He did not do anything good, okay? So what's going on here? Jephthah's a horrible judge. Maybe, maybe Hebrews 11 isn't so much about the heroes of the faith and their awesome achievements. Maybe Hebrews 11 is about a God who takes broken and rebellious people and still does great things through them. Friends, we worship the God of Jephthah, a God who doesn't deal with us on what we have done, who doesn't deal with us in our unfaithfulness, who doesn't deal with us on our worst moments or even our best moments. He's a God who deals with us purely by his grace purely on the merit and achievements of Christ. And if God, can I just say, if God can take a flawed and broken man like Jephthah and use him to accomplish his kingdom purpose, maybe God can take us, even in our brokenness and flaws, and use us for his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's bow our heads. You know, before I pray for us, I'd love to just give you a few moments where you're sitting at here. It may be for yourself, like Jephthah. There are things that you've done, there are things that you've said that just have wrecked you, that have brought such guilt and shame on your life. Can I encourage you in this moment right now to come before our God of grace, to lay it before the cross, and to know that it's in Christ there is no condemnation, that he is taking your guilt, that he is taking your shame, that he is sovereign over it all. Would you take this time to come before him in, in healing? And for uh, the rest of us here, those blind spots that maybe we've tolerated, the sins that we've tolerated, take this time also just to confess of those sins and to ask God to help you to pursue him faithfully, to have a faith that is pure, to have a faith that is rooted in his word and to follow him no matter what.